a work trip to St. Louis. So Welcome if, home. Thank you. So at CMA, the company I work for, we do every month we have all of the consultants come together and the, we, we call it our farm meeting. The purpose of the meeting is to have all the consultants sort of align around how we view assessments, how we approach coaching, how we you know, approach different client organizations, you know, just to be sort of more cohesive as a group. Um, and every, every day or every farm session, a new consultant leads the, 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 you know, the full day training. So at the start, this, this last week, we had an icebreaker, which was we all had to go around the room and we all had to identify the biggest lesson learned in 2024. And so I thought that'd be a good prompt for this podcast. Allison Colorosi, what do you think is the biggest lesson that you learned in 2024? I think to trust my own uh, intuition about things. I feel like as a woman, I have like been taught not to trust my intuition. And so like I'll let other people decide, you know, things for me or tell me I can't do something, you know, even though intuitively I feel like it's the right thing for me or my family. And so I actually was talking to about this with Enzo last night about trusting your intuition because you know, you know what's right for you. So you need to trust yourself. So I would say that that is the biggest lesson I've learned. I think that's a, I think that's a, a wonderful lesson to learn. And I'm, I'm going to try, I'm going to keep trying to, um, keep listening to myself because sometimes it's hard for me to do that when I listen to, you know, with people of authority and stuff in the way I was, I was like number four in the lineup of four kids, you know, of a patriarchal household. I was basically taught never to listen to myself. And so now, <laughs> now I'm like, I resent it and I need to keep like sharpening that sword. I'm trying to think about this. So are there points in your life when you feel like you've listened to the wrong person? Mm -hmm. You didn't listen to yourself and then it went bad? Yeah. I mean, I would say like certain moves we've had, I knew in my soul that we shouldn't have done them. That seems like a, a not so passive way of saying <laughs> when you listen to me. Or like, you know, um, I Wait, think... Wait, hold on, hold on. Is that what you're referring to? That's one of the things. But also, you know, like if I listen to my family about switching jobs or other people, they all told me not to do it. I should have did I'm glad I did it because it helped me grow professionally. Um, you know, leaving other jobs, people would tell me no. And it's just like, it's, it's the peanut gallery. I mean, they don't really care, but they have an opinion. And I always see, I always have listened to that opinion and had anxiety about it. And what I was telling Enzo is like, you know, you're, you know, in your soul. So it's hard, it, you got to listen to yourself. Mm -hmm. And so I think that is the biggest lesson. The other thing is like, I followed my intuition for our bike ride and I'm so glad we did that. Like I was like, that's going to be great. It's going to be so hard, but it's going to be so fun. Mm -hmm. So what about you? Wait, what do you want to tell people about the bike ride? What are you, what are you referring to? Oh, I'm talking about our vacation in Sardinia. We, David and I went on vacation in Sardinia last, um, last year. June, right? Mm -hmm. And we did a bike tour, a three-day bike tour with 
a five-year-old and also a seven-year-old or an eight-year-old. And we pulled them and we were not in shape enough to do it. We didn't know, but it turned out to be like the best part of our trip. So I'm really glad we did that. Yeah. I thought it was a wonderful experience. And I was, I guess, I'm I'm concerned that I am the, I'm consistently the wet blanket on all of your ideas because I was not that excited about this three-day bike trip. No, but. you weren't. And it, it, I feel like that, that was our, one of our best vacations mm-hmm. with it, just like bonding with the kids, bonding with each other. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I do want to do something every year that we challenge ourselves physically and like instill that on our kids as well. So, um, I'm really happy we did that, but uh, you know, it's not your fault. You have your own intuition. I just need to learn to listen to mine because mine seems pretty darn accurate. When I listen to it. Anyway, I love yeah. you. What about you for I, 20? What was your biggest learning? So I, do you know who Matt Reif is? No. Matt Reif is a comedian. And he, he uh, over the last, like he was, a, he was a struggling comedian. And then over the last, I don't know, maybe like eight months, he became exceptionally popular because he was filming some crowd work and, um, you know, he's a super attractive guy and he was doing crowd work with women and, you know, all of a sudden he became sort of like the hunk du jour of the year uh, and he just totally blew up. But he blew up not because he was considered funny, but because he was the hunk du jour and funny with crowd work. So he came out with a Netflix special a couple months ago and the Netflix special was... I think for most people, not very good. And it was overly provocative. Like he just started off being super aggressive, anti-women, you know, sort of misogynistic. And uh, he really tried to push the envelope. I think in an effort, I don't think I know in an effort to sort of say, hey, I'm not just a guy that women like, but I can be edgy like the standard comedian. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was like this sort of backlash where it was like, that wasn't, that was not a, funny special it was just an offensive special mm-hmm. and um he's like hey this is my art and then i heard another comedian like ref- reflecting on that named anthony jesselnick who is a you know a pretty provocative comedian but more tenured than matt rife and he said that he he did a quote from um andy warhol which is which says Art is anything you can get away with. And I think that that, and and so he was saying, what, you know, I think people a lot in, in, in 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 any industry think that pushing the envelope and getting people to be upset with them, you know, is sort of okay because that's my art and that's my style and I don't care what you think. But I think Andy Warhol's point and Anthony Jesselnik's point is it's actually not. If you're trying to do something, if you're interacting in a way and everybody around you is saying that was offensive or we didn't like that, then it's not good art. Good art is is being able to push the envelope and have people go, oh, well, that was so funny in the case of comedy that I'm going to put up with that thing. I think it's like art is, well, I guess, I, I mean, I see what you're saying. Like you're saying like people need to appreciate your art for it to be art. Yeah, so, so, so here's how I relate it to me. So I have historically, so I am not a super structured guy. 
I hate process. I hate administrivia. I hate all that kind of stuff. I know that administrivia is not a word, but I think about it's trivial administrative tasks. I can't stand them. And so I think professionally, I don't do well at them. And my kind of stance with that is, yeah, but the things that really matter, taking care of clients, you know, moving the ball forward on projects, while you maybe don't like the way that I'm approaching it, like you can't deny that I'm able to get things done maybe more efficiently by not following all of the rules. But I have consistently over my career gotten feedback from people that work in administrative roles that like, hey, it's really annoying to work with David because he doesn't follow any process. And I, and I, the same thing goes with, you know, there have been times at work or even in my personal life where I th think people have views or perspectives that I have strong disagreement with. And I will be very direct about saying that I don't like your view or your view impacts me in a negative way. Um, and then that leads to friction. And my historic stance has been, hey, deal with it. What I'm saying is, you know, I, th I think I'm right and I'm not going to compromise my view because it makes you uncomfortable. But so I heard that quote from Warhol and I go like, oh, I, I think I'm not getting away with it. Like it consistently creates friction. Mm -hmm. And I have to be better at going, hey, while I maybe maybe I don't like doing the administrative tasks, it is valuable. Whatever I'm doing is not working. And so I need to adjust it. Yeah. What do you think about that? I have so many thoughts. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. Well, the number one, I think when you, you needed to start the story telling what, what your lesson learned was because it took me, it took so long to get there that I had a hard time following it. And I think that goes to your structure. <laughs> like yeah, I was like, when what, are we going to get the, there? That's the, brain, that's the brain I live in. Okay. <laughs> The other thing is, is I also don't like people that need to be overly structured as well. Um, but I do know that it like, it helps people, other people's anxiety that you work with to live in their structured bubble. Mm -hmm. Although I find it limiting for like creativity and stuff like that. Yeah. That's the, I think that that's the, like I, I hadn't, oh, sorry, go ahead. That's, I was going to say that's the, I think that that's, there, there is a dark side to structure and process orientation which is it prevents people from being flexible and opportunistic it prevents you from pivoting at the last minute and and capturing an opportunity yeah can i tell you a funny example of this yeah that happened and so so we, i work on a team and we paid a vendor to find specific experts that weren't like they were out of the normal mm -hmm. to find these experts and so they told us their process and then they gave us their output and the output in the area that I know, I was like, well, can we revisit how you did this? Because it wasn't a good output. Like, I didn't get what I needed from it. And my colleague was, my colleague said, um, this was their process. Mm -hmm. So then we just move on. Like, mm -hmm. and I was like, but what? No, I was like, I w I'm not just doing this to check a box. Like we paid money for a specific type of output. And if their process needs to change to get the output, then we what, then we do it. You mm -hmm. know, so I found mm -hmm. that interesting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I found like that to be a really interesting, like they're okay with like, okay, so we, this is our process and this was our plan and they did, they delivered on this. And so then we check that box and then move forward. Mm -hmm. and, and you know, there was no pivoting. Yeah. So I feel like sometimes it limits people. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know I what agree. I mean? Well, that's a good. So anyway, so so the lesson learned, the lesson you learned to tie it up with a bow is. David, you're not getting away with it. So, so, <laughs> so I can, I think that professionally I can, uh, I can, I make the mistake of convincing myself that being challenging is okay because I get the result that I want. But if I'm leaving people in my wake, then I'm not getting away with it and I need to adjust my behavior. It doesn't mean that I have to let the pendulum swing so far that I'm Mr. Process, but I have to, you know, like Matt Reif can be more provocative if he wants to be viewed as funny, but he shouldn't go so extreme that he's now alienating his entire audience. Mm -hmm. And I shouldn't be so unstructured and flexible that I'm now alienating all in, all of my support staff. Did you say this at yeah. Parm? Yeah. That did, was, this was my, like, this was my lesson learned. Did people stand up with applause? No, they didn't. <laughs> <laughs> no. I'd be like, whoa, are you going to start planning? Can I tell you one <laughs> other quote that flies in the absolute <laughs> face of this, which I also tell all of my coaching. I, I mean, I would tell you, I tell this to, and 95% of my coaching clients, it's a Tennessee Williams quote, mm. which I want on my wall. And it says, it's kill off all of my demons and my angels may die too. And the idea is that oftentimes when people have special qualities, special talents or, or uh, characteristics, whether that characteristic is that you're super intelligent or you're super funny or you're super organized and process oriented or you're, whatever, really innovative or maybe really good at avoiding risk, whatever it is, oftentimes in corporate America, you are told to confine to some box. Whatever that edge is that differentiates you in corporate America, you're going to be told to fit in this, hey, be easier to work with, right? But if you remove somebody's innovation or ability to innovate, or if you remove someone's ability to add process and procedure to things, if you kill off that demon, the angel will also die. And now you just build a bunch of lemmings that have, that don't bring any value. Right. Mm -hmm. And so there's this, there's, it's like, so that's what I, I feel like there's the two quotes there, which I, I think fit, which is you need, I need to be able to be innovative and flexible and entrepreneurial. Like I don't want to lose my angels and I have to get away with it. I can't do it in a way that is, frustrating everybody around me and then just be like, eh, deal with it. You know what I mean? Um, I totally know what you mean. And so I was just wondering, since this is a relationship podcast, how that's going to play out moving forward in 2024 in our household. Well, I figured that since I'm perfect at home, that it doesn't have to address at home. It doesn't have to impact my home life. You know what? I think there's opportunity for you there. <laughs> there's room for growth there. <laughs> there's growth opportunity. And I'm just curious what, what you're envisioning. Well, I'm, I'm curious which aspects of our home life that you're referring to. It seems like you have something that's on the tip of your tongue. No. Mm -mm. I want you to know that while I was talking mm -hmm. and explaining this, I, could, I, could, I feel like I could just see your brain whirling with all of the, all of the things that are upsetting you with my lack of structure at home. Mm-hmm. Do you want to say anything? Mm -mm. Allison's just pursed lips staring at me. <laughs> I'm just waiting for you to say how you're going to, how it's going to manifest in our relationship. Well, <laughs> I have to evaluate whether or not I'm getting away with it. Am I not getting away with it at home? No. 
All right, fine. I'll plan more things. Allison, the, the, what she's getting at here, and she's not saying it, is that she would like me to do a lot more in the way of planning. Okay, so like, let's get tactical. <laughs> like what? What am I going to plan? Yeah, you can't just say like it bothers other people and then like move on and not change. Like, what are you going to do front with this learning moving forward? I don't know. I'm going to just be more deliberate about See, being but, but now you're re now you're reverting back to the unstructure. I don't know. I'm just going to wing it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I feel like you didn't learn anything then. Fine. Uh, fine. I'm going to, what do you want? I'll, I will schedule the kids, whatever, their soccer. <laughs> this is so bad. <laughs> this is so bad. This is what, not aligned you, to what you just are, t we're talking about. Well, I just want to make you it, are in uh, disalignment. Let's, uh, let's stop and let's just go. I want to just go back and do a review of what just happened on the podcast. Okay. okay. So I said, "What, Allison, have you learned in 2024?" And you said, "2023." Whatever, 2023. Mm -hmm. And you said, "I learned to try to be more empowered." No, I didn't. Which essentially, that's yes, not what I said. Be I, empowered to trust your. You want to empower yourself to trust your gut. Yeah. Which essentially is like. I'm going to take up more space and I'm going to be me and screw all of you. And I said, I need to curtail some of my behaviors. So I want you to know that one of us is saying, hey, I, there's a thing I'm doing and I'm going to restrict. And you're like, and the other one's like, I'm going to be bigger and better. <laughs> and then the person who said, I'm going to restrict, the bigger and better person goes, no, 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 no. Now you tell me specifically <laughs> what are the things in your life you're going to, how are you going to help me? Yeah. Okay, fine. I am going to be more intentional about supporting with the kids, the planning things with the kids, and date nights. I'll plan date nights. How about that? And I'll go to the dentist. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, I feel like I'm in the hot seat. Can we change topics to something that's an easier discussion topic? Okay. Infidelity. Sounds, sounds light. Okay, so I read this. The reason why I want to talk about it is because I read this article, which I thought was really fascinating. So this is an article. Um, the, the title, we'll link it in the show notes. The title, it's in the Journal of Social and Personal Relationships. The title is Justify My Love, Cognitive Dissonance Reduction Among Perpetrators of Online and Offline Infidelity. It's a really interesting article. Essentially, look, the, the, the question was, does the extent to which, you know, you would imagine that there's different levels of dissonance or I'm sorry, there's different levels of psychological distress that are caused when somebody engages in online infidelity and in-person infidelity. In both cases, you're going to experience distress, but the question is, like, what are the mechanisms? Like, how do you psychologically deal with your own behavior if you're engaging in an online inf affair or an offline affair? That was the kind of the global research question. And, and what they found was that your... So first of all, they went, I don't know if you've, do you know the website, Ashley Madison? I don't know if it's still operating or not. Wasn't one of the, the Duggars caught on that one? Is that the yes. infidelity one? Which Duggar? The one that's in the, jail. The oldest boy, I think he's. Josh Duggar. Josh Duggar. I think he was the one that had some, I think he had a bunch of accounts on Ashley Madison and then they had a data leak and that did not. Why did do not you, well. why do you need more than one account on it? Yeah. Maybe he only had, I don't know. I, I don't know the. Oh, I just didn't thing. know if there was like he had avatars. No, okay, but <laughs> I don't know. But the, the but the point is, and I guess the, here's the question for you, and then I'll sort of we can kind of walk through what the article says. The the question is, they looked at a lot of different things, but 
what is the, do you experience, do you have to do different mental gymnastics to deal with online, an online affair versus an offline affair? Do the people on the line, on the online affair, affair, do they ever meet? Or it's just, no. it's just talking. Just, just talking, you know, sending, you know, pics of aroused areas, that kind of thing. Just online. I just feel like that could always get you in trouble. But it does seem to me the online affair seems less like an affair, more like a fantasy. Yes. So, th- so there's a couple things that they looked at. They looked at one is, so let me just first just define cognitive dissonance. So cognitive dissonance is the idea that it's difficult to have two beliefs that are in opposition to each other. So I can't think that having an affair is bad and then simultaneously think that I'm a good person and I'm having an affair. Like there's a friction there that's caused and that that's the cognitive dissonance. So what happens is you have to find some way of removing, you have, to, you have to change the way you view things a little bit so that you can live with yourself, right? Okay. So one thing that you might do in this article, they call it trivialization. So you're saying, you know what? I'm having an affair, but it's not that big of a deal. My partner doesn't, whatever, my partner doesn't love me or the affair is not that significant or it doesn't mean anything emotionally. You're, you're making it less of an important thing. Because you're doing it online? No. Oh, because you're having... Cog- you're- Just in general, in, take online and offline out of it. Just Ugh. if you're having an affair, you have to psychologically just... You have to make that okay. Otherwise, mm-hmm. it's very... Distra- I can't think, I love my partner, and having an affair is wrong, and I'm going to then have an affair. There's friction caused there. So you have to do some mental gymnastics to make that work. Okay. So one thing you might do is go, yeah, but the affair is not that really... Not a big deal. Mm-hmm. Right? Does that make sense? Yeah. Another thing you might do is go, it's not really my fault. You deny responsibility. My wife's, you know, very difficult to live with, or she hasn't slept with me in whatever, a long period of time, so I'm justified to have the, the affair. Mm-hmm. Right? You might also change your self-concept. You might say, I'm a bad person. Yes, this behavior is a bad behavior, but I'm not a good husband. So what I'm doing is therefore okay. Mm. Or I don't, uh, I don't value the relationship. So yes, what I'm doing is bad for the relationship, but it's okay because I don't, I don't really care about it. Right? You have to do So they're looking at the amount of mental gymnastics that tie to it. Mm-hmm. And so the article essentially says that for in both cases, online versus offline, your, your self-concept essentially must change to make it work. That's the first place that you sort of start is you, cha- you change the way you see yourself. Mm-hmm. And the second thing, because they're looking at the progression of, this is a longitudinal study, so they're looking at the progression of, you know, entering Ashley Madison with an online affair or entering into a affair in person, you know, and then looking at that down the road, how does your global behaviors and attitudes and self-concepts adjust? How did they survey people? How did, what uh-huh. was the methodology? Survey. 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 And so like Ashley Madison said like, hey, you're on our site and you signed up. Would you be willing to take a survey? <laughs> I don't think it worked just like that. I don't know exactly how, how, did they they reached do out. I don't know how they reached out to them. Oh. But, the, but the, what's interesting about it is that the, is the, I, what I think is interesting about it is less than the granular detail of online versus offline. 
but the fact that in both cases, there's this, I mean, this is like uh, very clear data that you have to really change your view of yourself and you have to change your attitude towards the relationship or the affair. So it's just, this gives a, I think a very clear picture of people are making very significant changes in how they view themselves and the world around them to make their behavior work. Mm-hmm. The self-justification. It is interesting though, like the Ashley Madison. So, but I feel like that is, there's like a confounding factor there because people going to Ashley Madison, like know that they're, that the whole thing, what, I don't fully remember the website, but it's, it's, it is an infidelity website, right? Like you, everyone it, knows. Ashley Madison, you go on there and you are essentially saying, uh, I'm in a relationship and I would like to step out of it. Yeah, so is there a confounding factor in the study because of that? Because, like, only people that go to that website, they're all planning on being unfaithful, right? I'm not clear. I'm not sure what you mean. What's confounding about that? There's, no, there's no control in the study of pe- just normals. There's only people that are willing to um, change their self-concept. But they're saying, they're saying as the longer you're on that website, the, as you engage in the relationships, so they're, they're looking at the same group of people over time. And the longer that they're in the relationship, the longer they're on Ashley Madison, the longer they're engaging in a fair in person, their self-concept and their attitudes change. Okay. Well, I, I'm saying, go ahead. What do you say what you're thinking? Well, I don't understand what is interesting about that. It's, it feels like it's stating the obvious. Like, it, you know, if you're going to engage in that behavior, you're also engaging in justification of that behavior, and you're and as you as you um, keep it up with that, you're identifying with those the justification of of your behavior. So it's yeah. just it's just that to me, I'm not sure. It's not groundbreaking to you. To me, it's not groundbreaking. It's kind of like, yeah, that makes sense. What was groundbreaking for you in that? I just thought it was an interesting... I think the level... What's groundbreaking for me is the level of marked change in self-concept. This is not looking at... um, are, Are we... This is not looking at one moment in time with somebody, like when they start having the affair. This is looking at when you started the affair or when you sign up for Ashley Madison... And then down the road, checking in again to say, hey, how, what's your self-concept look like? like you, when you're in this dark place with the affair, your, your attitudes and your self-concept shift dramatically. Mm-hmm. I've, I, yeah, I mean... It doesn't, I, you're not shocked by that fact. I'm not, because like, take, take the affair out of it. Take, um, take podcaster. Yes. When you started podcasting, you weren't really a podcaster. But as you went down the road, you identified as a podcaster. And so then you then your concept of yourself is that yes, I'm a content creator now. And so like it's yeah, just it's you more, it's more like you, whatever your view is has been solidified solidified. Yeah. All right. Pop or, quiz, hold on. Pop quiz pop hop, pop quiz hot shot. Okay. One thing they looked at is this idea of trivialization and denial of responsibility. And what they found was that there was a negative relationship between trivialization and denial of responsibility and infidelity behaviors. 
which is the one piece of it which which doesn't go it's not intuitive so why would that be well can you explain what you just said to me that the negative relationship the, the more the more affairs that you have or the longer period of time that you're having the affair the the dissonance strategy of trivializing the affair goes away and you, so if you have one affair and I say, how important was that affair? How important were affairs? Your gut reaction is to be like, ah, it wasn't a big deal. It's just a whatever, a carnal urge. It didn't mean anything. And you will, as a cognitive dissonance strategy, you'll just say it wasn't a big deal. But if you've had four affairs or five affairs or you've been in an affair for you know, years on end or whatever, that dissonance strategy, the denial and the trivialization, those are negatively correlated. It goes away. So it becomes your... You're saying it was important. This is a problem. Oh. That is interesting. That doesn't... That, I wouldn't have expected that one part. That's the one little... That, that was in the discussion. That's like the one uh, wrinkle that they were like, oh, this is surprising because you would think that you would be, to your point, more ingrained in the cognitive dissonance. The argument is that it becomes so illogical... Right, if I have one affair, I can minimize it and go, oh, that was didn't mean anything. But if I've done it for years on end, you know, if I have a separate family that lives in Vermont, I, I can't, psychologically, I can't say that it means nothing because it's, it takes up so much space in my life that obviously it does. And so you lose the ability to trivialize it. Yeah. But you will, you'll still lean on, you'll change your self-concept, You'll, tra you'll change your global attitude towards affairs. Like those other strategies still work, but the trivialization one doesn't. Do those people stay on Ashley Madison? I don't know. You're asking some granular detail questions I don't know about Ashley Madison. I wonder if today, is Ashley Madison still a, a, a site or is there new ones? Well, because like, okay, so. I can confidently tell you I do not. If there will be a, if there was a leak on Ashley Madison, I will not be on there. I, I really have none, I know nothing about it. Okay, but like, what about tolerance? Because like, so like this that that study, you know, um, that study doesn't seem to correlate with like um, like one. You know how at first like you would be nervous to have your first kiss, but then like, um, then you just build up a tolerance to it, and it's not as it's not, you're not nervous about that. So I feel like, do you know what I'm saying? That you build up a tolerance. Like the first time you do something that's scary, it, the more you do it, it's less scary. Right. Oh, so you're, yeah. So you're saying that if I've had 17 affairs, affair number 18, I would be able to trivialize. I would, I would say like, yeah, it's not a big deal at all. I've had 17 of these. It means nothing. Yeah. Yeah. According to this research, it doesn't. That that one strategy has been impacted. I agree. By the way, I agree with you that it's not a shock if you if you understand cognitive dissonance. It's not a shock that when you're behaving in an abhorrent way, that you're going to justify it via cognitive dissonance. Like I, I agree with you that it's not remarkable uh, or surprising research in that way. But I do think it's a good example of in. In relationships, in life, the things that... It's just a good marker of how capable humans are of justifying... Of, of doing mental gymnastics to justify 
the behavior they want to engage in. Case in point, I mean, my family members. What? What do you mean? You know the argument about schools with Jordan? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it's like, what? I can't. There's so much gymnastics happening here. I can't. Be- yes. But you, we don't want to talk about that here, do we? <laughs> okay. All right. Allison and- had a disagreement with her brother-in-law. <laughs> Still hasn't settled. <laughs> <laughs> As we're talking about affairs, it reminds me of, you know, I had that interview with the the ringer regarding the Vanderpump Rules dilemma. Mm -hmm. And and I I was, this made me think of that interview. What they asked me was, I don't know if if anybody's following Vanderpump Rules, you know, Raquel and Tom Sandoval had an affair. And they had an affair for like nine months or something like that. And it was this, you know, catastrophic event in the Vander in the pump universe. And the person that interviewed me for this podcast was saying, why do people have affairs? And I said, because they wanted to. And I think that that is like an important way for us to think about this is if somebody is having an affair, our, we want to be like, Oh, well it was because they had a bad relationship with their father or their mother or you know, they saw infidelity in their household or they don't love themselves or the relationship's a disaster or they haven't had sex in a long time or they have poor emotion regulation skills or they have poor impulse control. Like, we want to have a thousand different reasons for it. But in my opinion, all of those reasons, like, it doesn't matter. The bottom line is they're making a choice because in that moment, they want to have the affair more than they want to protect their relationship and protect their partner. And I think that, that this, is, this sort of serves to sort of point to the same thing, which is we will do all kinds of mental gymnastics to explain why what we want to do makes sense for us. I think that the problem in therapy as it relates to treatment of infidelity is a therapist will oftentimes try to help someone figure out why they did this horrible thing. But they stop short of being of just saying, you did this horrible thing because you wanted to. Mm-hmm. That's why you did this. You, just, but it, right? so that but that goes down to locus of control and stuff, which is some people think that they don't have they don't have control over their own actions. Well, know? I think if you <laughs> are a y- yes, I, I mean I think that if you engage in horrible behavior, it is very difficult to deal with the fact that you have the locus of control. It, you'd rather go, hey, this has nothing to do with me. Yeah, you know. And in some cases, like if we're talking about addiction, for example, having an internal locus of control, I think, can be pretty damaging because it just leads to self-doubt and regret. It undermines confidence, and you're, it sort of prevents you from being able to deal with it appropriately mm-hmm. versus if you you know, are alcohol-dependent and you can say, look, this is beyond my control, then you're better able to get support for it. Yeah. That's true. But at the end of the day, you, you would never say to um, an, you know, an addict of any kind or someone who's misbehaving in any way, you would never say, don't worry about it because you came for you, whatever, because you have this in your family. You still have to worry about it. You know what I mean? And I feel like when it comes to affairs, sometimes we, we justify it so much that people don't, aren't held to account. I mean, in so many aspects of life. I'm watching the R. Kelly documentary right now. I have, <laughs> that's the guy that was the, the rapper that was peeing on people? 
no, he he was um, he was he was basically like a Jeffrey Epstein, like getting young girls to bring other young girls around. Um, he ended up marrying like a fifteen-year-old girl who was really? a singer, Aaliyah. Yeah, and she ended up dying in a plane crash. Our Carrie married. I know who Aaliyah is. Yeah, he married. I didn't know they were married when she was fifteen. Oh, yikes. There's a lot of yikes about R. Kelly. Anyway, I'm watching the documentary uh-huh. right now. Um, anyway, so interesting conversation. Yep. Right. Love you. Love you.